Episode 11 of the Believe and Follow podcast. Before we delve into this week's discussion, I think it would be helpful to refresh our minds concerning some important principles. The method God has always chosen to deal with mankind is to make promises and give instructions. What he expects from us is to believe his promises and follow his his instructions. In the fullness of time, God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to show us the way by example, instruction, and promise. The divine pattern remains the same. Believe and follow Jesus. When Jesus came, he was faced with a variety of traditions and teachings that had their origins with man. Jesus, having come from the Father, knew the difference between what came from the Father and what only appeared to come from the Father. He taught us to make it our business to distinguish the genuine Word of God from the Word of man. He gave us the tools to do this. So even though today We are also faced with a variety of religious teachings that have sprung up since the time of Jesus. We can, if we put our mind to it, make sure we clearly understand what is from God and what is from man and follow only God's instruction. This week we discuss Calvinism and a specific element of that teaching from man in the hope of honing our ability to separate the remnants of this teaching that have become entangled with God's word and lead many astray. Calvinism is a major branch of Protestantism that follows the theological tradition and forms of Christian practice of John Calvin and other Reformation-era theologians. Calvinists broke from the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, and even if you have never heard of Calvinism, your understanding has very likely been influenced by this teaching. In 1984, I was studying from a brand new NIV translation of the Bible. In this translation, the word flesh is often rendered incorrectly as sinful nature. This translation is incorrect and reflects the teaching of Calvinism, specifically the false teaching that we inherit the sin of Adam. The Greek word spelled S-A-R-X 
was the word used to describe, for example, meat you would buy from a butcher or the flesh of your leg. And so there's nothing to indicate that this word should be translated sinful nature. It just means flesh. I am happy to report, though, that this translation error was corrected in the 2011 update of that Bible translation. This week's discussion looks at how this past error has an effect on some who have never even heard the word Calvinism. At the end of last Sunday, we started talking about the baby's guilty or innocent topic. So this is the question. Babies, guilty or innocent? Sin-wise. Sin-wise, obviously. Well, this is a Bible discussion. Okay, so Claude casts one vote for innocent. What do you think, Jeremy? I cast mine for... Yeah. Innocent also. Okay, so we're done. Next topic. <laughs> because while they might sin and have sin in them, I think, a, I think that the Bible make, says in a couple of places that you have to be... Or at least, hold on, if they, I think they can break the law, I guess. But if you don't know what the law is, then it doesn't quite count, I guess. Does that make sense? Let me pick apart the flavor of your thing a little bit. Do you think a newborn baby is born with or without sin? I think they have a sin nature. Okay, so you think they have a sin nature. Remember what I mentioned on Sunday. I see little traces of Calvinism in that kind of thing. So you say you think a newborn child has a sin nature. What verse would you use to indicate that? What's your vote, Brian? Babies, guilty or innocent? I think uh, instinctively I'm going to say they're innocent. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Versus the like supported. Yeah. That's kind of a common sense answer. But now we come up with this idea that babies are born with a sin nature. The Bible that I studied in starting in the 1980s was an NIV Bible, and the people who translated the NIV Bible would often translate the word that's flesh as sinful nature. And the reason why they did that is not because if you look up the Greek word that's being used for flesh means anything but flesh, but because those translators were influenced by Calvinism. What I don't want to do is necessarily go through all the principles of Calvinism because I don't think that helps us. But if someone says something like, I think babies are born with a sinful nature, then that smacks of an influence of Calvinism. And that's okay. I'm not being like accusatory. I'm not saying, Jeremy, you're inferior right, to me. Go ahead. Psalm 58.3. Okay. Let's turn to Psalm 58. Start there. Start at verse 3. Who wants to... Uh... I can read. Sure. Go ahead. Why don't you read verse 3? 
Okay, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. Oh okay. gosh, yeah, okay, that, yeah, we stop there. Yeah, that's far enough. I'm just asking, what do you make of that? Let's just get Tonya's vote, and then she'll join in the discussion. So I posed the question because of an issue that came up on Sunday at the very end of our discussion. According to the Bible, babies, innocent or guilty? Innocent. Okay. But now Jeremy just mentioned, because Jeremy also voted innocent, but he said, I feel that children are born with a sinful nature. Oh, in the, I mean, in the sense that we have desires of the flesh and desires to please ourselves rather than God, I think that's true. Right, I like that way of putting it. But we're just trying to decide if newborn baby has a sinful nature. And the reason why I say that, my theory about if someone says something like, I think a baby is born with a sinful nature, that thought is influenced by Calvinism. I think it's more safe to say that they have an undefined nature because is it is it it's not any more sinful than it is godly. They don't have a spiritual bias either way. Bias either way. They have that when babies are born, they exist primarily on instinct. I mean, they they. You know, they cry when they're hungry, they cry when they're uncomfortable, and there's not really much motivation behind that. There isn't any seeking of God, there isn't any, um, so I don't think it's very fair to ascribe a nature to them um, that, that is so that involves higher thinking skills that they haven't, uh, that they aren't equipped with. Okay, I like that. That's good. That's very sensible. So then Jeremy said, but what about, for your consideration, he's, he's being Rod Serling, submitting for your approval. Psalms, chapter 58, verse 3. It says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. How about the non-wicked? <laughs> But we're all wicked, right? We're all evil. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah. But has a newborn baby, does a newborn baby fit in that category of all of sin? Wait, well, so the King James says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Um, but... I think that that's obviously a figure, like, as soon as they be born is obviously a hyperbolic figure of speech because we aren't speaking whenever we're born either. Um, so, so it's at least figurative in that sense. I consider poetic language also. What the Calvinist believes is that we inherit Adam's sin. All die because Adam sinned. And we'll look at Romans 5. You're right. And we'll look at that in a minute. We'll look at Romans 5. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is talking about the resurrection. That's the overall topic of the chapter. 
he's discussing some who say that there is no resurrection. But in the midst of this, he says something that I think is helpful in our topic. Let's read verses 21 and 22 and then work backwards. Who wants to read 1 Corinthians 15 verses 21 and 22? Go ahead, Claude. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Look at the wording. We understand that not everyone is in Christ, correct? He's not talking about the whole population. Mm -hmm. What he's saying is that in all that are in Christ will be made alive. And there's conditions to being in Christ. And the conditions are what you do, how you respond to the gospel, how you respond to the instructions from God is the condition under which you're in Christ. Okay, so you're saying that the the two words all are not the same. No, I'm saying it is the same. As in Adam, all die. Now remember, the Bible is concerned with the spiritual truth of things. Now, if you are operating according to the pattern of Adam, then spiritually you'll die. And what is the pattern of Adam? The pattern of Adam is transgression of God's instruction. So this is two things being put together to make a point. That's how you understand what the all is. Because you understand in Christ came, what did he do? He said, I'm only going to, to speak what the Father told me. I'm only going to do what he commands. So if we, like Christ, behave that way, then we live. And it's even bigger than that, which we'll get to in a minute, because we'll look at Romans 5 after this. But if we behave like Adam... In other words, as in Adam, as in the way of Adam, just like as in Christ. What does it mean by as in Christ? Well, we know that we're in Christ by following the instructions, by a certain set of behaviors. And the same thing, as in Adam. Because some people take this verse and misapply it and say, ah, there you go, here's a verse that says we inherit the sin of Adam. Because as in Adam, all die. But that's not what it says. Because we don't inherit living from Jesus Christ, we get the life from what we do. Because we know there are all sorts of verses about what must we do to be saved in Acts chapter 2. And we'll repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they follow in the apostles' teachings. That's all my thumbnail condensation of Acts chapter 2. But that pattern we see throughout as far as the gospel is concerned, that's why someone has to tell you the gospel. How can they believe that they're not heard, you know, etc, 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 if they don't hear Romans chapter 10. That's why someone has to preach to them because someone has to give them the instructions and then they have to say, now I'm going to obey these instructions. So now you're following in the pattern of Christ, no longer following in the pattern of Adam, and now you live. Do you see how you can't use this verse to say, ha there, we inherit Adam's sin? Mm-hmm. What do you guys think? Now you guys saw. I think, I think that, I mean, I've never thought of it as inheriting Adam's sin. I think that you're not the, a Calvinist. The, well, but I think that the incorrect um, interpretation that I have heard most often might be more that the beginning half of the verse for as in Adam all die 
is applied physically to a physical death, um, but then the last half is a, is applied to a spiritual life, which I think is like a like a like a little bit of a weird disconnect in yeah. application. I never thought that was exactly right because I really I feel, feel like, like he's, he's smushing them both together because. Is the gospel so much concerned about physical death? No, because everybody's going to physically die. But being alive in Christ is what the gospel is concerned with, and that's being alive spiritually. So if we're talking about being alive in Christ, being alive spiritually, we have to assume that the first half of the of verse 22 is also talking about being dead. Because the key is, how do you look at it? What does it mean to be in Adam? What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, we know, and we can work backwards from that. We know what it means to be in Christ. So now we work backwards to say, then that's what it also means to be in Adam. We're not automatically in Adam, but we are in Adam when we sin. And if we don't decide, like Jesus did when he started off his adult life and he said I'm going to only do and say what the Father has told me if we don't make that commitment are we going to sin? it's just about inevitable it's like if I don't choose that I'm going to walk a straight line then I'm going to walk however I'm going to walk and you know I might accidentally walk a straight line but it's not likely thoughts, questions, comments, concerns? The idea that you have there, I agree with that. I mean, because the second part, like you said, it's not, it's not that everyone automatically gets applied that. It's, you know, you have to do something. And so the first part, yeah, you can't really, I don't see how you could really use that. Exactly. So that, that's one of the verses that often gets pulled out when both discussing this. And another one that gets pulled out, this is one that I, I've done before. Romans chapter 5 this is a very similar sort of verse, verse 12, but he's talking about, in Romans chapter 5, he's generally having a discussion about having peace with God because we're justified by faith and what that means. Remember, what's he doing in the beginning of Romans? He's making the point that we're all in the same boat. The Jews are no better than the Gentiles. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. So now look at verse number 12. So he wants to read Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. It kind of doesn't finish the thought, but I kind of want to make the point on verse 12. So who wants to read Romans 5, 9 through 12? Go ahead, Jeremy. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Okay. Like I said, I'm leaving you hanging. But the point is, what the Calvinist would say is, and I realize I'm kind of like creating a straw man here by saying about Calvinist. The only reason why anyone would even dare to say an infant is guilty is because of some vestigial Calvinistic leanings. And that's why I'm arguing against 
the person that's not here, this poor Calvinist that we're attacking, who's not able to be here to defend himself. But in verse 12, the Calvinist would read the verse like this. If we believe that we inherit Adam's sin, he would read the verse like this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because Adam sinned. <laughs> that's the way they say it, but that's not what it says here. Death spread to all men because all sin. Remember, we're more concerned about the spiritual aspects of death than the physical aspects of death. Death spread to all men because all sin. Your sinning causes your spiritual death. And here, all is all. Because all have sinned. Well, the only one who is actually able to carry through with this, not sinning ever at all, is... Who reached adulthood and who was, and who was like, mentally... I mean, I feel like, you know, there's a sort of mental capacity required for sinning. Right. So until you hit that mental capacity, I don't think... And the idea of this is, can you be charged with sin? if you don't have the mental capacity. Just like the Apostle Paul makes the point, you can't reasonably be charged with sin unless you're aware that there's something to transgress. Well, verse 13, you know, that's that's what is the following verse. Right, as a matter of fact, why don't you now read 13 through 15, because that's kind of like (laughs) what I'm leading us to at this point. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not, like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for men. So you see, what's being said here is... There's always somebody who's got to be the first. The first man who sinned was Adam. And the first man who lived a sinless life was Christ. So in the way that we have followed in the footsteps of Adam by sinning, we spiritually die. If we follow in the footsteps of Christ, then we will live. I think that verse 15 kind of makes a very clear contrast between the idea of inherited sin. Mm-hmm. Because uh, like, it, like, if you understand the verse properly, or at least at least I'm assuming the way that I'm understanding it is properly, because it, it starts off with saying, but not as the offense, so also, is, at least I'm reading from the King James, but not as the offense, so also as the free gift. The idea of the offense is that we all committed, we're all guilty of it, so we all die. But the idea of the free gift is one man was capable of doing it, but we all live as a result of it. And if it wasn't the case that one man sinned and we're all guilty, then there wouldn't be a contrast between one man is righteous, so we're all made righteous. Do you see? It's like Right, exactly. It's like one man, two man, three man, every man, sin, condemned. One man righteous, everyone made righteous. And without that, there is no 
but not as the offense. Without that setup, there's no contrast. So it, it can't, it, this verse doesn't work if by one man we're, we're all guilty in the same way that by one man we can all be righteous. Right, it, but you it realize can't that, work at all. Right, and some people who've, who've heard the pull between that argument, between the Calvinist argument and what you're actually reading here, will say, okay, then therefore everyone's saved through Christ. You've heard people say that too. Christ died for the whole world. Mm -hmm. So because Christ died, everyone's saved no matter what you do. And that's not true either. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, then, what about uh, Jesus' prayer from the from the cross, where he said, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." Right. So, in other words, um, the fact that they are the fact that people sin means that that they are according to that they don't really know what they're doing. Well, I think that's God. He was specifically talking about those people who were doing something that they didn't know what they were doing, and that they didn't realize that they were crucifying the Son of God. Right, which makes sense because if they thought he was the Son of God, they, they wouldn't, wouldn't be crucifying him. They believed yes. him. Yeah, I feel like so, that's a specific incident. Yeah, the idea is that, that he died for for us all. So in other words, we all crucified him. In that sense. In a sense, that's we true. All, we all crucify him. Sin, we all crucify him. Yes. him. And uh, then according to his prayer, you know, I don't what know. What you're trying to do, you're trying to make a leap with a prayer that Jesus prayed over those people that sinned by having a hand in crucifying him gets imputed then to the entire human race. I don't necessarily see that the text supports that idea, but I've heard other people say that too. In other words, people who say that because Christ died, all are now saved, and it doesn't matter what you do, point to that verse there and say, look, Jesus even, he, he said to everyone, forgive them all, forgive everybody. And of course, you might think that, but we have all sorts of other verses that put a qualifier on who gets to be saved and who gets to not be saved. If that were true, there would be no need to preach the gospel. If everyone was saved, then it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't Why wouldn't it? Because you would be saved anyway. You wouldn't need yeah, but, the gospel. But the, the reason that the gospel preached is because it was commanded that it be preached. When someone asks the question, what must we do to be saved? And the answer is given to repent and be baptized and follow the apostles' teaching. If that's the answer, then that's what you need to do. You need to repent, you need to be baptized, you need to stand firm to the end, like Jesus said, or you won't be saved. So even though one might think from something like that, you might think that, and I'm saying every thought that we have when we read a verse, has to be reconciled with the entire Bible. Go ahead. Tonya has had a scrunched look in her face. Well, no, I mean, I think that hmm. it's correct in terms of potentials. Yes. Like Christ died so that the potential, so that the gift of salvation is available to everyone. Yes, there's enough of there's, Christ to go around. No one's going to say, oh, I only it. And that gift is there. Yes. But the other portion, like, the, the, the other portions of the Bible, the other portions of the gospel indicate that it's a gift that we have to take. And so yeah, Christ did die for everybody. That gift is on the table. But if we don't follow the commands to to to, to accept that gift, then what good is it? It's but the same as if it didn't happen. 
Say again? But then we don't know what we're doing, according to this prayer. His, I, I, his I don't prayer understand a, why that prayer is just not like... It's a specific mm. prayer in a specific case. And I don't think any of the other... I mean, like, none of the other things that Jesus said on the cross are taken out of context and applied universally. Like when, you know, when Jesus said, I thirst, when Jesus talked to the thief, when Jesus talked, went to, uh, about his, you know, his mom, like, mother behold thy son, you know, son right. behold thy mother. Like, nothing else, that, everything else that he said on the cross applied to that moment, that incident, the that situation. It's not a plot. I don't understand why we would take that one particular prayer out of context and try to apply it to the entire world throughout all time. Because that makes no sense to me. Of, but the, the, the question is, is it out of context? It, it seems like it would be yeah. taking it out of context. Yeah. 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 The reason why... I say that is, and the reason why Tonya says that is, is because we have all sorts of other things in the Bible that indicate that he was not giving a blanket pardon for the entire human race to the end of time. We see in the preaching of the gospel that there's something that you must do to inherit eternal life. We even see beforehand when someone will come up, who was that rich young ruler that said to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know what the instructions are, he says to him in effect. Go do those things. And he says, I have done all those things. And Jesus was happy with him. But then he says, okay, one thing you lack. He had to do things in order to be saved. It's always, you are charged with sin because of what you do. You're acquitted of sin because of what you do. And well, the only reason why we have the a, possibility, I'm about to end the qualifier, but the only reason why you have the opportunity for that is because of what Christ did. Yeah, I, yeah, 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 I don't think it's fair to say it's because of what we do. I didn't get in the qualifier quick enough, but the point is right. The only reason why we have the option is because of what Christ did. Because we already know that we are guilty of sin, so we can't live a perfect life like Christ did. So the only reason why we have the possibility of being acquitted of sin is because Christ paid the penalty. But we still have something that we have to do in order to lay hold of in order to receive the promise that's been given is something that we must do. So even though one might think that and one might read that verse and say, oh, look at that, he's blanket for giving the entire human race till the end of time, that's not true. Right? But he's not forgiving them. He's asking the Father to do something. Right. The question in my mind is, how is the Father answering this prayer? I will tell you, Acts chapter 2, once again. Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. It's 50 days after this incident here. Yeah. Many of the people who were there in that crowd that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, are in this group that Peter is preaching to now in Acts chapter 2. So some of these very people are asking this very question what must we do to be saved? And then Peter gives them the answer. Be baptized. Right? Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the Father answering the prayer that Jesus made. Okay. I, I think that I would still ask, ask the question, what is the antecedent of them? I mean, um, is the antecedent of them only those who were there? Or is the antecedent of them 
a, a larger group. It seems to me that like everything else that he did when he was on the cross, everything, everything else that he. Luke twenty three. It's in the. Um, what? Say again. Luke twenty three. Luke twenty three. Thirty four. Jeremy always looks for the best. Everything like, else. He's he says, like, I'm always Berean. confused. We should call you Jeremy the Berean. Because 23... 34, I think? 34. Yeah. i tell you what I, what I might it think. It seems like everything though. else that he said when he was on the cross, and he said, you know, other things, but like in other rec- records, um, it, uh... It is very, like, pertains to the thing that's happening then. I would think that when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, the them and the they, in this case, are the ones who are crucifying him. The ones who parted his garment and cast lots. See, I might think... Yeah, the ones I who are crucifying him, the ones yeah. that parted his garment and cast lots. Like, those people who did that, they're the ones, and he's asking... For forgiveness because they were because they did it in their ignorance. Doing a quick reading, I might say, "Oh, maybe he's just talking about the people that are crucified with him." But no, because it's talking about the whole scene and the different parts that different people played. And there were those that were crucified with him in the part that they played, and those that were, you know, casting lots, and the soldiers that are mocking him, and all those things that are going on there. So my assumption would be that we're looking at this scene here that who he would be referring to were the people that are in the season. Right. Is there anything in the text that makes me think that the them should be applied universally? So this is a good exercise because there are so many places where the Apostle Paul is talking and he does an us-them thing. And the first thing you have to do to understand what the text is saying is who are the us and who are the them. In some of the verses where the Apostle Paul is talking in his epistles, the us is the, is the family of believers. In some of the verses, the Apostle Paul is talking, the us is just the apostles. Right? So you have to figure out who's the us and who's the them. So I, I would say, in this case, we'd have to get into the mind of Christ to know who the, who the them is. We have the text. We have the mind of Christ, we have the text. You have that, but, but you don't... I mean, it, that, you see what it says, but you do not... You do not know in the mind of Christ what, what, we, what it is. I'm saying that we don't know. I, I, I plead agnostic in this case. You plead agnostic. Yeah. I plead agnostic. I, I don't know what... I don't know exactly what he means because I, I don't know what his thought processes were at that particular moment. So I do not know. Here's my question then. What is the purpose of this text? Why did Luke write this text? And why did God inspire Luke to write this text? What's the purpose of the text? I would say to... Can you think of a I would verse? say to cast down <laughs> in, in effect. Say what? I would say to cast doubt in effect. Inasmuch, Luke chapter 1, verse 1, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished amongst us, just as those living were either witnesses of the word and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent 
Theopolis, mm -hmm. so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. This was afterwards during the time of the gospel and during the time that this word was being preached about what you must do to be saved, right? So now going back to this verse, and I do agree with you that it's, it's hard to, it's just like when you're getting testimony. You can see what someone says and you can make some sort of inference, but if you do something, what was the verse we read again? Luke 23? Verse 34. 34. It's hard to call for the operation of the person's mind, but we have this text given to explain what's going on. Tanya makes the conclusion from the text that he's talking about what's going on there, and that's a reasonable conclusion in the way you read that. Well, and the other, like, recordings of things that he said. Like in the other records of Jesus's death and on the cross, other done, when he's like all of the, the cross, all yeah. of the records of everything that he says, pretty much on the cross from Matthew, Mark, and John. You know, we have we have these seven different things that are recorded, and all of them, you know, unless this is the one exception. But then like, it would have to be something in the text. You know what and I there's, say? But there's, there's not anything in the you know text to indicate. Go ahead. What I say that we have to wait, and we'll find out when, you know, when everything is done. We'll find out. But I think that's a risky. I think that's a risky proposition if you are to say because to use to use. To well, it is up to God. But I think for you to say, well, this verse could be taken this way. So I'm and hang so my I'm gonna hang my bets on it that this is a blanket prayer to forgive everybody for all time. I think that's a risky proposition to yeah, it is risky. Stake, I, I admit that I'll admit it's risky. But, but on, on an interpretation that doesn't, that, but the text doesn't lend itself to that interpretation. You see, I say even though you're pushing that point because you want to push that point. Okay. And if this was all we have. I would have to say to you, yeah, we don't know. We'll have to see what happens. But we have the behavior of Christ's apostles afterwards. We have the behavior of Christ beforehand. And we have the whole rest of the Bible, for that matter, mm -hmm. that indicates that when God's instruction comes, what God's looking for, what God's looking for from every human being was that you believe. Mm -hmm. And then as a result of that belief, you follow his instructions. So when someone says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's the instructions given, only because you're going to follow those instructions if you believe. Now these people here that he's talking about are people who did not believe that he was the Messiah and the Son of God, or else they would not have crucified him. Now, speaking to Tanya's point, we see that the, uh, the criminals that were hanging with him, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So that is an unbelieving person. Oh yeah, if you were the Christ, you wouldn't be in this predicament. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus... Now the man says to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Mm -hmm. And he said to him, 
Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He's not saying to the whole human race, today you'll be with me in paradise. Right? He's saying to the person that he's addressing. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing for the verse before. Father, forgive them. In verse 43, he's speaking to a single person. Single person right. And so his words apply to that single person. Mm-hmm. In verse 34, he's speaking about them, the group of people that are in his presence, and he is asking the Father to forgive them. That's kind of nice. And we see the Father carrying that out in Acts chapter 2, when those very people are being the first to hear the gospel preached. They're the first people who get offered this salvation. Are many of these who are here are there in that audience with Peter right. uh, on, in Acts chapter 2 to that argument that, that you stated I say yes that's when he carried through with what Jesus is asking him to do here when the father carried through and that then negates the argument that this is forgiveness for the entire human race for the rest of time that you really have to do something and you have to do something to be in Christ what did Christ do when he was gathering his disciples to him? He would say, come, follow me. Mm-hmm. Something that they had to do. So it always is, just as it's been since the dawn of time, just as it was for Adam. You believe, you follow the instructions. I mean, I think that if it, that if it were, that the, that if it were a blanket forgiveness for everyone forever, then the entire rest of the Bible defies it's not logic. Needed. It's like right. that, that would just be the end of it. There would be no like. You wouldn't um, need to be preaching when, the whenever, gospel. Yeah, whenever you know the people realized that they would. that they had crucified. Hmm? I'd say still you would still still have to because because no. that's what that's what he wants. He wants the gospel to be preached. So you would preach the gospel just because he told you to, even though it's pointless. It's the best, not pointless, if, 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 he, if he told you to do it. Okay, I use that logic. I mean, no, I, I, I can't argue with that particular line. Because yeah, but, if, but, yeah. but he also says that the gospel is the power and the salvation. That the purpose of the gospel is for salvation. Yeah. If the gospel had, was was just arbitrary because I wanted to be preached, then it wouldn't have the power of yeah. salvation in it. I and agree. it's like, you know, if when they were all like, oh no, when they realized, oh no, we crucified the Son of God, what are we going to do? Peter would have said, it's okay, don't worry about it, you don't have to do anything, because whenever he was ready to die, he asked God to forgive all of you anyway. End of story. And that would be it. End of story. No, I, I mean, like, obviously I completely agree with you, but I'm, I'm always trying to be completely consistent in my logic. So sometimes I'll make that argument to someone who says, yeah, but this doesn't make sense. It's like when Abraham was told to move to the land of Canaan, he very likely didn't understand the full import of what he was being told to do, but it came from God, and he believed what God was telling him, so he followed his instructions, moved to Canaan, whether it made any sense at all. So you're right. Even if I say, well, why preach the gospel? It would be pointless. And, and you say, well, because God said to. Well, I've said that before for other things. It doesn't mean that we're wrong. I'm just saying that yeah, that particular right, right. argument mm-hmm. by itself works in my brain. Because if God said to do a thing, we do it. 
but that doesn't negate the fact that there's a specific purpose in preaching the gospel is so that we can be saved. It, yeah. it works, but I think that, you it's know... It's wrong, but it works. It, it, it works to say, well, we preach the gospel because God told, tells us to, mm-hmm. and we do these things because God tells us to, but that doesn't negate... The fact the that we have to, yeah, the agree. fact that we have to do it, and the fact that God says this is for this purpose, yes. we can't negate the purpose mm-hmm. that God declares. Yes. If God didn't declare any purpose, then fine. But when He does declare, the purpose of this is to save people. We can't then say, well, the purpose of doing the purpose of the gospel isn't really to save people. It's just because God told us to say this stuff. Right. So, like we can't, we can't right. take that purpose away. If he's declared it. So here's my question. Going back to the original premise of babies, innocent <laughs> or guilty. <laughs> and just this idea that the babies have a sinful nature. Whenever you hear sinful nature, that is when the Calvinist sees the word flesh, they read sinful nature. Yeah. The flesh is not intrinsically evil. The flesh is weak. And this is the thing to understand. It's like, it's almost inevitable that we sin. But it's not inevitable that we sin. And Christ proved that by coming in the flesh and not sinning. So if the flesh was cursed, and flesh equals sinful nature, then Jesus would also have a sinful nature because he came in the flesh it's clear that the understanding is when we look at Adam and look at Christ that we like Adam sin we die and in Christ we live because the pattern of Christ is in sin I was going to say I, I mean I don't think I would certainly not say wouldn't use that phrase well but Christ because Christ was in the flesh, Christ did have a sinful nature. But at the same right. time, there were times when Christ was tempted. Right, absolutely. And in the sense that there were times, you know, Jesus, in the garden, Jesus' prayer makes it very clear that he didn't really want really to die on the ground. He was really super He did was like, you know, if there's any other way where I don't have to do this, I don't want to do this. As a matter of fact, at that moment, let me just interrupt you for a second. When he says, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done, he's admitting that at that moment, if he had the choice, if he was in charge, he would have said, oh, let's forget this. Let's do something else. But he says, but he submits to God. But So proving, right, he's being tempted a mundo, but proving that it is possible to withstand that temptation. Right, so my, only, so my point in saying that is... That I feel like that the nature that is there, that in which, during which, we seek our own will and not the Father's, in those moments where Christ was tempted, it was there. Yes. He overcame yes. those the temp- weaknesses. The the he overcame those weaknesses of the flesh, and he didn't sin. But it and he proved that it's possible to not. But the, I wouldn't. I would think it's unfair for us to say that his nature isn't the same of ours. Isn't the right. same as ours when he was born. And 
Because otherwise, the fact that he came as a man proves nothing. Right. Like, if he... Like Agreed. If, Agreed. And that's the whole beauty so, part so of I him think, coming in the flesh. So I think if you... So I think if you do use that phrase, all men have a sinful nature, or all flesh is of a sinful nature, I feel like, in the sense that Christ is also man, you would have to apply that to him. Right. So that's why I'm saying the phrase is incorrect. Mm-hmm. You see... Most people don't declare themselves as Calvinists, but there's a lot of vestiges of Calvinism in a lot of religious practices today, right? The Catholic Church baptizes infants for this very reason. They teach and believe that an infant is guilty until you baptize the infant because the baby inherits Adam's sin. Well, we see from our discussion today that's not true. Besides the fact that whatever you do to an infant can't be called a baptism by the definition of the Bible, right? it's also entirely not necessary because the infant baby is innocent and without sin until such a time as, as it has some awareness. Okay, um, my, my mother's mother died in childbirth. Your what? My mother's mother. Mother's died mother died in childbirth. childbirth. Okay. Not only did she die, but the baby also died. Right. So wh- where's that baby now? That's a, that would be the question. You know, what happened, to, what happened to that baby? Remember... And let's see if Jeremy can find this first. Remember days when yeah. he sinned with Bathsheba Sheba. and God said the baby will die. Mm-hmm. And remember he was... Mm-hmm. Prostrate, and, yeah, and, right, right. Uh, until and then the baby dies and he gets up and he's yeah, right, 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 right. You know that. Right, yeah. And they say to him, "What's going on here, David? You know, you're not mourning anymore. The baby's dead." And he said, "I can go to where he is. He can't come to me." What's the and, and when Jeremy finds the verse, I'm really I'm really <laughs> testing Jeremy the Berean. But the point is that he's gone to a place where David hopes to go. The baby that died, the baby goes to heaven because the baby has not sinned. The unborn baby certainly hasn't sinned. So I'm saying, yeah, a baby dies, baby. And, and once again, we can't, I can't enter into judging someone, performing the final judgment on someone because that's only reserved for God. But by all the information we have in the Bible, you can't charge the infant baby with sin. You can't charge the unborn baby with sin. By everything I understand from Scripture, the unborn baby will be welcomed into heaven. Second Samuel 12. Second Samuel 12. You want to read the verse? I'll read the verse before too. Okay, go ahead. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Thank you. That's the final word on that. Where'd that baby go? To the place where David hopes to go to. And David was not hoping to go to the bad place. So have we answered the question? Babies, innocent or guilty? Hopefully this discussion has been helpful in alerting you to the influence past religious era can have on your understanding of God's word today, even if, or perhaps especially if, you have never heard of a particular teaching. 
This week we used a false teaching that comes from the influence of Calvinism from hundreds of years ago. There are many other examples of this sort of thing. We have thousands of years of humanity struggling to understand what God is telling us and thousands of years of false teachings that have sprung up. Therefore, we must be alert to this and test every single belief to see if it is indeed from God. This is pretty much a lifelong process and requires constant diligence. If we neglect this process, our faith will be in vain and we will not receive our eternal reward. So this is very, very important. If you have any questions, or even if you disagree with any of this, feel free to email me at james at believeandfollow.org. Special thanks in alphabetical order to Brian, Claude, Jeremy, and Tonya for their comments this week. Till next time, goodbye and God bless. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be Sweeter also than honey